Well, good morning, church family. And once again, we are meeting online for church because of the coronavirus. And I want to thank all of you who are so faithfully attending our Zoom services. We've had so such good attendance there at church. We can see each other's faces and we can do more than just watch church on a screen. But we can be involved and engaged in other people's lives as we can talk with them and interact with them to somewhat approximate what we're trying to do on Sunday morning. I want to take you back to the 1980s. And I know some of you weren't even born in the 1980s, but I was in high school in the 1980s. And I remember watching this particular TV show called That's Incredible. It was hosted by John Davidson and... Kathy Lee Crosby and Fran Tarkington. And on the show, they would have a wide variety of people doing incredible things, perhaps with incredible talents, like being able to chop through layers of concrete with your forehead or like kissing a live cobra. Other segments would be stories of incredible rescues, like the little boy who spent 20 minutes underwater in a frozen lake when he fell through the ice and yet fully recovered with no brain damage at all. Other segments told of some incredible people, like the woman who lives her life upside down because that was the only way she found relief from her headaches. Or or like the five-year-old who had impressive golf skills. This is Eldrick Tiger Woods, and Eldrick is an accomplished golfer. He wins tournaments on a regular basis and has shot close to par on 18-hole courses. Incredibly, Tiger here is only five years old. On the tee, we have the 9 o'clock starting group, the youngest contestant ever. He's five years old, Eldrick Tiger Woods. There it is. Great shot. When I'm going to be 20, I'm going to be Jen Nichols and Tom Watson. And there were times when the segments were informational and, and so explained some great medical breakthrough, as in saving premature babies or in performing some particularly difficult surgery. And some segments put forth those who can do bizarre things, like being hoisted on a crane from some muscles in your back, or like squeezing into a small box that's two feet by two feet by two feet and remaining there for an hour. And some skills are are just interesting, like blowing smoke-filled soap bubbles. Other segments were downright dangerous, like the guy who took a ride atop a flying jet. Or like the guy who catapulted himself over five buses off of a motorcycle. And perhaps this television show made a special impact upon me because the show came to film an episode in my hometown. There was a senior in high school... Um, who had developed a special interest in psychology, and particularly with B.F. Skinner, who taught about rewards and punishments. And so this high school senior, through rewarding rats with food, taught them how to take a ball and put it into a hoop. And so these rats became basketball-playing rats. And, And That's Incredible came out to our high school and filmed this episode about these basketball-playing rats. Take two rats 
a sportscaster, a cat, and a psychology student. What have you got? Rat basketball. Who is going to be the overall best? Jump tip taken to the drive line. Larry Bird has it. Takes left, comes right, goes down the lane, pushes it up and in. Two nothing lead. Loose basketball back to the drive line. Dr. J comes up with it, steps down the lane, one hands it up and he'll hit it. Four two. You'll see the replay. Watch how Bird gets caught inside. The doctor slips with one foot, then with the other foot. The power of the ball in. It's a four two lead and a great play. Now, one of the things that I remember from this television show is is the chant that the audience would often say together after they had viewed some sort of segment. They would often see it and then say, that's incredible. Well, this morning, as we look at a text of Scripture, after reading the Scripture, you will probably have the same response. You'll say, that's incredible. Our Scripture this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And to these things we can say, Do you see what's so incredible about these verses? If not, that's okay. My aim this morning is to open up these verses for you so that you can look at these verses and say, wow, that's incredible. By way of outline this morning, I have two points. My first is this, embrace His grace. In verses 9 and 10, we see Peter giving six descriptions of who we are as believers in Jesus. He says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession... We are God's people. We are those who have received mercy. Now, what makes these words so incredible is the audience to whom Peter is writing. You can see right there in verse 1 who he's writing to. He's writing to the the scattered believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, now these are prominently Gentile believers in Asia Minor who had come to faith in Christ as a result of hearing the gospel in the first century. Now, there are some who might believe that Peter is writing to Jewish people. After all, he was an apostle to the Jews, Galatians 2. But most of the people to whom Peter was writing were Gentiles. And I say this because of chapter 1 and verse 18. Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Peter wouldn't use these words to describe the lineage of the Jews. Jewish people had a great ancestry. Their adherence to the law of Moses, even if by name only, wasn't a feudal life. And furthermore, in chapter 4 and verse 3, you see Peter describing their their former manner of life. Verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, these types of things wouldn't be characteristic at all of the average Jewish person of the first century. Uh, life in the synagogue would have prevented them from doing such abominations. And, and certainly there were Jews who were backslidden and did participate in some of these things. But, but that was not the pattern of Jews so that Peter would generalize this sorts of behavior of, of Jews in the first century. But, but it was so of Gentiles. And, and with that as a background, do you see why these verses are so incredible? They're incredible because for 2,000 years, God focused His attention upon one nation, 
that is the nation of Israel. But now Peter writes to these scattered Gentile believers in Jesus. And he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are God's people. You have received mercy. See, God's favor upon Israel has now come upon the church, which means both Jew and Gentile. Now, I don't believe that this displaces Israel as a a unique people of God. For Romans chapter 11 and verse 25 promises that all Israel will be saved. There's a day in which Israel will turn and come to Christ when they look upon the Savior whom they have pierced. And Israel is the one nation that has the promise of a future revival that will bring people to himself. So I don't think these terms of calling Gentiles by Jewish terminology at all displaces the people of Israel. But what it does, it expands the scope of God's working in this world. No longer is he working just on one nation. Rather, Jews and Gentiles alike share in the inheritance of God. It's no longer ethnic identity that brings you into the covenant, but it's faith in Christ that brings you into the Abrahamic covenant. And the New Testament's really clear about this. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, we read this. Know then... That it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, You Gentiles are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession. What was once spoken to Israel now applies to the church through faith. And I hope that you grasp just how marvelous this is. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks about the the state of any non-Jewish person before the coming of Jesus. He said, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You know, today we have a, a political issue, it's called illegal immigration, where people from all over the world, other nations, come, cross our borders, and live among us without governmental permission. Now, they benefit our, our country immensely, and that they provide work for us, but they often fail to pay taxes, and, and often suck off social services, freeloading on all of its citizens. Now, in most cases, immigrants that come from other nations, if they're hardworking and upstanding citizens, there's a path to citizenship in our country. But in Israel, before Christ came, such was not the case for the Gentiles. If they wanted to immigrate to Israel, they they certainly could. And they could have done everything possible to have been a productive member of society. They, They could have worked hard. They could have learned the laws of Israel and assimilated into the customs of Israel. They they could have supported the work of religion by contributing to the work of the temple. They could have been circumcised. They could have been model citizens, but they never had a path to citizenship. The best that they could have been called was a proselyte, that is, a convert into their religion. But they couldn't be fully embraced into the the Jewish religious world. Archaeologists have found a, a stone in the temple area upon which was written the following. No man of another nation is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensued. 
And the Jews took this very seriously. The story is told about the Jews in Jerusalem who, who laid hands on Paul in the temple area because they thought that he brought a Gentile into the temple. Acts 21, 28, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. It was a huge thing. Right? For the Gentiles to stay away from the temple area. And they're even ready to arrest anyone. They're even ready to kill any Gentile who would enter into that temple area. It's not, not very welcoming, is it? I mean, can you imagine coming to Rock Valley Bible Church and before you enter into the doors, someone meets you out front and says, um, excuse me, are, are you from the Rockford area? And when you say, no, I, I grew up in Chicago, they would say, okay, okay, I, I'm sorry, you need to stay outside of our auditorium. You, you, you can stand out there and look in through the windows to see what's happening in the auditorium, but, but, but you can't come in. That, that's not quite so welcoming, right? You, you feel awfully left out at Rock Valley Bible Church, if, if that's the case. But that was the case for Gentiles seeking to get into Judaism. They, they just couldn't do that. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And, and in fact, according to the law, they had no covenantal promises of the Old Testament. They had no hope that Messiah would come and save them. They were without God in this world. But in Christ Jesus, all that has changed. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And you say brought near to what? Well, brought near to the Jews in, in one body, in which is now called the church. And that's what Peter's getting at in 1 Peter chapter 2. The church is this chosen race. Though composed of many ethnic groups from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, God looks down and considers them all, all of us, as one, na- one race, People have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. We are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Can you see now how incredible these things are? That we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And all these expressions were first used to describe Jews. The Jews were a chosen race. Many times in the Old Testament, God referred to Israel as his chosen nation. His chosen race of people. Isaiah 44, verse 1. Israel, whom I've chosen. Isaiah 45, verse 4. Israel, my chosen one. Amos 3, verse 2. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. It all began with Abraham. When God chose him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and told him to journey to the promised land. And he said, I will make you a great nation. And when indeed he made the nation great... And we brought them into the promised land. Moses reminded the people of Israel, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the story of the Old Testament is a story of God's gracious dealings with this one race that God chose to bless. And now here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, God's expanded the scope of this chosen race to include the Gentiles. And, and, and through faith in Christ, all ethnic diversities all around the world are now removed. Because it says that in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're a chosen race. And, and just think about the, the next three phrases. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. 
All these terms are used in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, before Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. The Lord said, Now therefore you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And each of these phrases describe God's perspective on the nation of Israel. And the amazing thing here is that Peter takes each of these phrases and transfers them directly to us as the recipients of God's tremendous promises. Israel was called to be a royal priesthood. Now, not that everyone in Israel were priests. That was reserved for the Levites. But they they were to be a, a royal priesthood in the sense that their whole nation would bring people to God. And likewise, believers in Jesus are priests as well. Not, not in the sense that we, we bring people to God with the actions that we do, but we bring people to God by the gospel that we tell others. We are priests in the sense that we can tell the world how to get to God through Jesus. And we then become the means through which people get to God. In Exodus 19, the, the Lord told Israel they should be a holy nation. One of the purposes of the law is to create a holy people who would follow the laws given by Moses, to teach them how to live, to, to set them apart, that they would not be like the other nations that they would possess. Deuteronomy 7, 6 again, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. Their behavior was to be different because of their relationship to God. That comes to the church as well. The church of Jesus Christ is to be holy. As Peter said in chapter 1 and verse 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. But but that last phrase, right? A people for God's own possession. The idea here is that, that God would wrap them around and keep them as, as, as His own. He would be faithful to them. He would comfort them and be merciful to them. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Israel was God's possession. He owned them. He protected them, and He would guard them. Israel was the apple of God's eye. They, they, were, they were God's treasured possession. And they're to, to place their, their refuge and their trust in Him. This is God's attitude towards those who trust in Jesus as well. Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deeds and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. See, when we believe in Jesus, we, we become one of God's, that God takes us and cares for us. We are, we are His treasured possession. As a result, we need to trust Him with all things. As Peter later says in chapter 5 and verse 7, Cast all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The contrast of these phrases show how marvelous they are. At one time, they were not the people of God. Israel was the people of God. But now through the work of Christ, they become the people of God. And God's blessing is upon their lives. And before Christ had come, we as a church were no mercy people. We'd not received God's mercy. But now that Christ has come, we've been embraced by, by God as those who have received mercy. We've become mercy people. And, and can you even imagine what it would be like to be under God, God's wrath in your sin, and with the sin upon your shoulders, and having no mercy of God in your life? But God's extended His mercy to us. And to all these things... We have to say, that's incredible. And so, church family, embrace His grace. I simply mean just understand His grace and rejoice in it. And I trust, you know, that sounds familiar. We should enjoy His grace. And we should extend His glory, which is really the next point here in verse 9b. It says, proclaim His fame. 
Right there. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The flow of Peter's argument goes like this. God has brought some unbelievable blessings into your life. He's given you the the promises that he made to Israel. He's he's brought you out of a dark and hopeless situation. Now he's given you a hope that is beyond all hopes. And and your role is simply to proclaim to others and tell how, how precious God is in your life. It's almost as if Peter is saying, this ought to be a natural thing for you to speak in that way. Well, let's go back again to the 1980s. The unique thing about the 1980s is that that in those times, if you wanted to watch television, there were, for the most part, only three channels. There was ABC and CBS and NBC. There was no Netflix. There weren't hundreds of cable channels you could choose from. There wasn't YouTube or the distractions of the Internet. If you wanted a movie, you needed to go to the store and check out a VHS tape to be able to take home to watch your movie. And so the implication of that is that if you're watching television on any given night, you are watching with many other people across the nation. And, and, and if you went to work the next day or you went to school the next day, conversations were about some of the shows that were showed last night. And I can just imagine, right, one coworker saying to another, wow, do you see that guy on That's Incredible last night? It was amazing what he did, how he folded his body into that small box and he stayed there an hour. I, I couldn't believe it. And the response comes, yeah, but I, I saw that. But I was much more impressed by the, the guy who drove his, his car into burning upright cars, knocking them down. Now, that took some real guts. And I can imagine a third coworker talking about the, the piece they saw about the blind foster child with severe brain damage that was taken in by the old couple. He, he couldn't even talk, but he could sing. And, and this coworker might even say, I was so amazed at his musical ability. I was so touched in the heart. And, and these were the kind of conversations that took place in the 1980s after a, a night spent watching television. And, and why would these conversations take place? Because the people were so captivated by what they saw on television the night before that it, it wasn't difficult for them to speak about it. They, they found it so stirring that they wanted to share it with others. And that's what God calls us to do regarding our, our salvation. God has lavished His blessings upon us that that should make such an impact upon us that we can simply say, that's incredible. He wants us to speak of the overflow of what we've experienced. That's what Peter says. He says He has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that's something that every believer in Jesus has experienced. At one point in your life, you're walking in darkness, but the Lord in His grace called you out of your sinful dark ways to serve Him, the the true and living God. And in doing so, you found Him to be more lovely than you ever expected. And you ought to be so amazed at what took place, you can't help but to speak. And we see that in the early church on several occasions. When, when the religious leaders tried to muzzle the apostles by commanding them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, even threatening them that they'd be punished if they did. L- listen to what Peter and John said. They said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be judged. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They couldn't restrain themselves from speaking what they had witnessed through the life of Jesus. And so incredible was it that their mouths could do nothing else but proclaim 
Jesus. And they're bold in their convictions. And they went out and spoke publicly about the Christ. And a second time they're arrested and brought in before the council. And they questioned them about their disobedience and their command to stop speaking. And Peter said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, right, we just, we just have to speak. And even being flogged didn't stop them from speaking. They went forth out of being flogged from that place, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And in the very next verse, we read that, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Here were simple fishermen who were transformed by the power of God to give strong testimony for the gospel. And fundamentally, what changed them? What changed them was what they witnessed and how incredible it was. They'd witnessed Jesus of Nazareth. Who God anointed with the Holy Spirit with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And they were witnesses to his death and his, his resurrection. And now they were on a crusade to make him known. And I would contend that our difficulties in speaking with others today about Jesus has less to do with training and more to do with the impact or lack of impact that Jesus made in our life. Now, I'm not against evangelistic training and not at all, but speaking boldly about Jesus has more to do with your own grasping of the marvels of Christianity and what what Christ has done for your own soul than it does about technique. I mean, you can teach a salesman to, to sell a product, but nothing sells better than someone who uses the product and tells his neighbor how much it has helped him. Right? When your life is impacted by, by something, you will tell others. Right? Maybe your child has problems with, with reading and you experience this, but you got hold of this reading program, this video program across the internet that helped your child then unlock the keys and read. You, you will, you will direct them to that. Or, or maybe some tutor helped your child and you'll say, this tutor really helped and you will advocate if someone else is having that problem to go to that tutor. Or maybe you have sleep apnea and you couldn't sleep before. Now you've got a CPAP and it's really opened the world to you and it's helped you sleep much better. Or maybe you were lifeless before. You started taking this vitamin and you took this vitamin. It's really changed your life, giving you a lot more pep in your step. And so you will tell others about this vitamin that you need to have. Or maybe you found some type of church that's had a big impact in your life. It doesn't take much to then speak to others about the church that's been so helpful to you. And and that's the same thing here that Peter's telling us about. is is the amazing grace of God that, that we've received His mercy. That now we're His chosen race brought in among the people of God. And we just simply need to proclaim His excellencies to others. And notice, when Peter tells us to proclaim the excellencies of Him, he's talking about aesthetic language. He's not so much talking about facts, of the facts of the life of Jesus, or or cold facts. He's talking about the beauty of Christ. He's talking about personal things that should come forth from our mouth. It's not so much even upon the greatness or grandeur of God, though we should speak of those things. But here it's the the emphasis upon the experienced kindness of God, the loveliness of Jesus. And we need to tell the world that we have found Him to be so attractive. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. And we who have believed in Jesus have experienced the sweetness in our souls. We've experienced the, the joy of the gospel firsthand. And we've experienced how wonderful and excellent the Lord is. And Peter is simply saying, go out and tell that to others. 
Go and tell the world about how he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it ought not to matter really who's listening. Because when the excellencies are told forth, there will be worship from your mouth. If it falls on the ears of of unbelievers, there will be evangelism toward them. If believers hear it, it will be edification and discipleship for them. And so proclaim the fame of his name. Well, you say, Steve, well, I'm not, I'm not able to do this. I don't, I don't think it's ability. You might say, I'm not gifted to do this. And I, I will admit that there's levels of gifting in this. Some are better at proclaiming the excellencies of Christ than others are. But, but really, aren't there circumstances in your life that have brought such excitement into your own being that you can't help but to tell others about it? Maybe you build something and, and you're excited to show it to others. Or maybe you went to the, the flea market and, and found some type of deal and, and you want to want to bring that to the attention of others. Maybe your son or daughter is some star athlete, high school basketball team, and you want you want others to come and see. Maybe your children have some performance coming up and you invite others to see that performance. Or or maybe you've had some huge success, some some sales at work, and you want others to, to share in on that. And so you you speak with your wife or your family or, or your coworkers about what great things You've been able to do what great sales you've been able to make. And it's not difficult to talk about those things. And so likewise, it's not not to be so difficult to speak about the excellencies of Christ. But you may have difficulty speaking of things you've never experienced before. And if you've never tasted the sweetness of the Savior, you won't have much to say. But if you've tasted of his excellencies, you'll have much to say you say, what should I say? Well, verse 10 is a great outline of what to say. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you might tell people this, that I once was not part of God's family. I was off doing my own thing, but the Lord was gracious to me and he brought me into his fold. Now I'm one of his chosen one. Now I'm one of his people. He's forgiven my transgressions through the blood of Jesus. And it's not because I earned it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And I just encourage you to really think upon the excellencies of Christ. There's lots to think about. And when you do, I think you will speak. Now, I don't think there's any of us who really fully realize just the depths of the riches of the mercies of God to us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, all our transgressions have been forgiven. Christ Jesus paid for our sins upon the cross, washing us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleansing us from our sin. In Christ Jesus, we've received all of his righteousness. And when we stand before the judgment someday, Christ Jesus will be our our defense attorney who will plead our case before the Father for our souls. Christ Jesus has taken away the wrath of God that was due to fall upon us. In Christ Jesus, we face no condemnation. We have no reason to, to fear the judgment because perfect love casts out fear. In Christ Jesus, we've been made alive to God. We've been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We looked at that last week in chapter 1 and verse 4 of First Peter. Christ Jesus is preparing for us a place in heaven, a place that we will all live for eternity. And, and, and someday we'll fully realize this glory that is to be revealed to us. That, that we will be a kingdom and priest to our God that we'll be fellow heirs of the kingdom with Jesus Christ. And until that time, Jesus is praying for us. And with any care and concern, we can draw near to him and He will. Re- we will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Perhaps Ephesians 1 verse 3 sums it up best than anything. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing is given to us in Christ Jesus. You can't name a spiritual blessing that's not been given to us. And the amazing thing is we didn't earn any of these blessings. Because every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And it comes upon us, and we receive it. And so, church family, this morning, I just encourage you to embrace His grace that you might proclaim His fame. Really, isn't this the motto of our church? Rock Valley Bible Church exists to enjoy His grace and extend His glory. And these things are on the wall of our church. They're on our mugs and on our pens. I put them on the, the weekly word. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 say exactly the same thing. We should enjoy His grace and extend His glory. Or as we say, embrace His grace and proclaim His fame. Let, let me read this passage one more time and see how you respond. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's-